My first girlfriend, who I was with for four years, cheated on me twice. This is your high school girlfriend? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say her name, but maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not going to. But if you're listening, you know who you are. <laughs> Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today, we have our special friend, Hanyu. <laughs> So <laughs> we have our friend Han Yu Che. He's a grad student in Boston and he is going to be speaking with us today about a topic that I think I feel like it's really hard a lot of the time to come up with topics for for people that you're already friends with because you have already there's so much backstory that you already know. Right. But I think that one really salient topic for us, especially in recent history, has been talking about whether suffering and deandre correct me if this is like not the nuance you're looking for but like basically whether suffering or, or or having painful or negative experiences in your life makes you a better person or like basically makes you deeper yeah i um i often like joke but not joke about pain just making someone a better person because i feel like it gives people perspective and i think that especially between hanyu and i we've i want to say had tension but i think that we disagree on that point i figured why not just talk about it so i think that first i want to acknowledge that this is one of the things that I have absolutely no evidence for. Uh, it's just based on my human experience of meeting people that I feel like have been through shit and like me having like been through shit and sort of analyzing their perspectives. But I think that when I meet someone who has like experienced heartbreak as like a good conventional one or some like big tragedy, something about them feels more grounded, maybe more perspective-y. And I think that it allows people to like appreciate the better things in life more. I, I'm a very avid believer of the idea that low lows make the highs feel that much higher. I think that without, without lows, the highs aren't as valuable, but I know that they're at is at least one person on this podcast right now that hasn't had a lot of lows, but still feels a lot of highs, AKA as well. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Confirmed. <laughs> this has kind of led me to really believe that people that have pain or have experienced a lot of pain are like really, really tapped into the, the human experience in a way that people that haven't experienced pain are not. It sounds like you're saying that there's just like, they've experienced more of what it means to be human, right? Like just have had richer experiences. I think so. And I think that by nature of having those rich experiences on the low end, it allows for richer experiences on the high end. I'm going to fall back on a Jonathan Green quote here. This quote is from the book, The Fault in Our Stars. And it's about this woman with terminal cancer. And everyone is constantly telling her, look, you must have such a rich life experience because you're going through so much suffering. Right. And she's like, fuck that shit. She basically says just because the existence of broccoli doesn't make chocolate taste any sweeter right i disagree i really do i think i i really think that a lot of times i feel it's almost a trope in like cancer situations or like mortality situations where people are like oh you know everything happens for a reason right you have had this experience and i think it's comes from this really good like impulse to find like the silver lining in bad events but sometimes there just is no silver lining sometimes things are just really really bad right and so i mean i think there are things in life that are just like truly deeply horrible right and have no redeeming like literally no redeeming qualities yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that I don't believe any that anything happens for a reason. And I do think that like sliding scales are important and that like obviously too much tragedy is a bad thing and it makes people want to kill themselves and like not live anymore, especially with like the cancer thing. I could definitely see how 
if your experience is terrible and like never feels like it's going to get better, then that isn't, you know, a richer human experience. But I think that the example that feels that I can most easily fall back on is this example of heartbreak and feeling that sting of rejection and understanding the, I think it makes people less naive, especially about things like love or romance or the idea of sharing a life with somebody. I think it's healthy to know that things can just go wrong in the blink of an eye and there might not be a reason for it, but you can still learn from it, if that makes sense. I think part of it is, so like say I've never had heartbreak ever, right? I just live my life, you know, somehow and dodge, completely dodge heartbreak, right? I can also, like, I also can talk to people who had those experiences and like read a book about it or whatever, or like talk to friends and have like heart to hearts about it. And of course, it's hard to think that those experiences are the same as actually going through it yourself. Like they're almost definitely not. But you can still seemingly like learn on an intellectual level what that experience is like, right? Drake's songs hit really different when you've experienced it, right? Or some version of it. Okay, can you just like give some examples of what you're talking about, right? You don't have to like go really in depth, but like I would say that probably the only time that I've suffered significantly is after getting broken up with. And the way that I deal with that is I just completely erase it from my memory and it's worked out great for me. (sighs) Like, (laughs) I don't think that I, in fact, I don't, I would actually argue that the flip side of not learning from it, because like hypothetically, what could you learn from that? Right? Like, it's just that like people are shit. Like, I don't think that's a good takeaway. I don't think that's like a positive thing to learn. Right. So like, can you give me an example of what you're talking about when you say that you're learning things? Yeah. So my first girlfriend who I was with for four years cheated on me twice. This is your high school girlfriend? Yeah. I was going to say her name, but maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not going to. But if you're listening, you know who you are. (laughs) No, so uh, we were together for four years. It was very first love, you know, like very puppy doggy at first. One of the first like pure loving relationships I've ever, I've shit. (laughs) It was one of the first pure loving relationships I'd had with someone that wasn't within my family and even with my within my family I hadn't had many experiences like that and there were tons of things that were unhealthy about it as many young high school relationships are but she cheated on me twice the first time was two years in and then I took her back we did another two years and then she cheated on me again and we broke up and I think that my takeaways from that were as follows one I don't think that you can ever really truly know somebody And I think that that was the first experience that sort of led me down that path. Okay, but even like, okay, with that as the takeaway, I still feel like from a just purely practical standpoint, right? If that is the takeaway, you're not still going to try, right? With other people that you're in a romantic relationship with to know them, right? Even if you do have this belief that you can't 100% know someone, right? Like how does that practically help you to have like learned that thing? I think that it taught me a lot of sort of warning signs of in relationship the ways that it makes sense to conduct yourself for example i think that jessica and i wow (laughs) yikes keep it in (laughs) keep it in uh for example i think that my first girlfriend and i were very naive i think that we um didn't acknowledge a lot of our differences i think that we opted to stay away from some of the arguments that we're having and not talk about why they're happening. Um, I think that led to her being really unhappy with the situation, which I think is what led to her cheating on me. Um, And I think that, I truly think that without that experience moving forward, I wouldn't say that I, 
I wouldn't be able to have a healthy relationship. I think that's extreme, but I think it gave me a really good firsthand account of why it's important to communicate with your partner, why it's important to work through things, uh, because I know what the other result is, right? And I also think moving down the line, like the, the me now understands that that was a very like deep tragedy and sadness that I was feeling, but that the, the good thing that came from it was that I did have to sort of rebuild my life and figure out what it was like to not, you know, to not have a girlfriend, to not be dating her, to not have a long partner. And yeah, I, it's, it feels, it feels super intangible though. I get that. I get the question. The analogy that I would make, and maybe this is completely wrong, is it's like you've been in this horrible bike accident, right? And you're now like, oh, I really need to wear my helmet, right? Maybe this is that. Maybe that's trivial. That happened to me. <laughs> yeah, Literally, but like this is an example I've been through. There's also like a, a lot of it's well known that you like you need to wear a helmet, right? Or like maybe it's not so, like wearing a helmet is like super trivial and not really seems like not really fair. But like they're kind of like best practices for being in a relationship that we all like. People tell us what to do in some ways. I would argue that people. I would argue that those things are not that clear. That makes sense. But like everyone knows that like communication is important in a relationship, right? I guess. But I don't think people know knows what that actually means. I don't think anyone sat down with me and said, hey, if you and your partner have a disagreement that goes unresolved or if things feel off, you should probably sit down and talk through that with your partner uh, in, in depth, even when it's uncomfortable. I think that my like the relationships that were shown to me uh, never provided me with that perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's... Even though, okay, so definitely I've done very little suffering, right? <laughs> and I do actually feel like I have not uh, suffered for it. <laughs> like, in the sense that I I do think that I, like, you know, despite the fact that I had that, you know, one experience of being broken up with and it was shitty, I don't really think that most of what that was about was what made my later relationships better, per se. Well, that's not technically that's not exactly what DeAndre's saying. He's not saying that like you can only grow through suffering. It's like if you do have suffering, saying, well, yeah. There's pot there's some sort of growth attached to that. Sure. But I also think though, yeah, you can definitely get yeah, you can definitely get there in other ways. But like I don't I don't think that you could like have this sort of I don't even think you could make the general generalization that, you know, it's a good thing. But it's kind of it's kind of interesting because like so I've been thinking a lot about CRISPR, which is basically the gene editing technology. It was discovered by this woman named Jennifer Doudna, and it's a basically a way for you to just go in sort of gene by gene and you can change it both I think in fetuses but also in living people, right? And it's the kind of thing that is Super, I don't really understand the science of it, but it's super interesting from a philosophical standpoint because we can basically, you know, design, actually have intelligent design now, basically. And when I, when I think about it, there's this thought experiment that I like to ask people, which is like, if you were able to kind of have the power to change the genes of everyone in the world, is that something, is there something that you would like change about human nature, right? Because I do think that a lot of people have very cynical views of like what, you know, human nature is about. And I, I think actually a lot of those can be linked back to things that are part of our genetics, right? Like having a predisposition towards violence is kind of a genetic thing, right? Or having, 
low empathy or being depressed, like, or anxiety, all those things I think have some basis in genetics, right? And then the question is kind of, if you could take a element of humanity and just edit it out for everyone, is there something that would be valuable to sort of take out, right? And at least for me, on the one hand, it seems like very narcissistic to say that we are at our final form and that there's nothing that we would want to take out. But at the same time, if you like go down the list of potential negative elements of humanity, it's kind of difficult to come up with something that isn't, doesn't have some sort of inherent value. Right. So the go-to example for me is violence, right? It would make no sense. I think even like, obviously just for one person, it would make no sense to just take the violence gene out because people are going to shit on that person, right? And they're probably going to have a bad life. But even on a societal level, if we did it for everybody, is it valuable to get rid of that? Probably not. Like we could always have like an alien attack and we'll, if we didn't have that gene, we would be really inconveniencing ourselves and like putting ourselves at a disadvantage, right? If we could eliminate human suffering, right? A lot of like development organizations and like, you know, various organizations are, are aimed at being able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think if there was a button you could press... And like humans can no longer like experience pain or like intense pain or like, you know, like obviously some level of pain is good just from a practical standpoint. Right. So you don't burn yourself on the stove. But like I'm I'm pretty convinced that if you could press that button that that humans don't suffer anymore, that would be a really good press. You would want to press press it. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. But why? Well, one, like. In our in our current world, as it is, lots of people suffer all the time. Right. From like malaria, from like not having enough food, you know, even in a world where everyone doesn't have those issues like poverty, malaria, etc. I still think suffering is incredibly unpleasant, you know, and a, and a philosophy that like seeks to limit suffering. And like, that's the kind of like metric that you use to gauge how good a society is, I think is a really good one. Thinking about what you just said, I think that I agree with you. If we could just remove it from the world as a whole, like remove suffering and pain as a human experience. But I think that socially in the world that we do live in, where like that's never possible, I think that pain is just another factor to relate to people on, if that makes sense. I think that more people experience some form of suffering than don't. So it's like we both got broken up with. We have more camaraderie with like you and I have more camaraderie because of that. Yeah. And we know how we know some best practices on how to avoid it. Yeah. This seems like silver linings, though, again. I never viewed myself as a silver linings person. Am I a silver linings person? I don't think so. This effect sounds like a second order effect where humans suffer, right? And as an added bonus, they can commiserate with other humans about that suffering, right? But there's plenty of ways that humans can commiserate in general that doesn't involve suffering at all. I guess what you're saying is that if you can come in before that first order or on the first order and prevent the initial suffering from happening, we should just do that. Yeah. I mean, the basic thing is suffering is bad. All these like bad things are bad, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we really focus on these small bonuses to be like, oh, life isn't that bad. When in fact, it really is just that bad. I think here, this is, here's a real world example that I think that people are actually seriously considering because of CRISPR, which is sort of the community of people who have like, who are deaf or blind or have a certain disability like that. Right. So like, it is a very conceivable thing. I think at this point where we could say, well, if you wanted to, you could have a kid that wasn't blind or wasn't deaf. Right. But the deaf community is now like its own cultural thing that people who are deaf actually derive a lot of value from. Right. And it is, I think a testament to humans ability to adapt and cope in a lot of these situations that they can like get something that profound out of it. And I think a lot of them would say like, no, like if they, if they 
are going to be deaf, then I kind of want them to be deaf, right? Because then they we they can share this profound. And I don't think I'm less of a human or like, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I have a much less convenient life than people who can hear. But like it is its own, it's become its own valuable thing. Yeah, well, in that case, they're not suffering. You know, they get a lot of value from it. So like that's not suffering then, right? And then we shouldn't eliminate it necessarily. Yeah, I get, yeah, that's totally valid. Like suffering isn't the same thing as convenience, right? Or like lack of convenience. But those people surely have suffered because of their lack of convenience. I think simply you would just ask them, like, do you, like, what would, what do you want to do? Right. And humans do usually what is like the path of least suffering. I was thinking about what Isabel just said about if there's anything that we would like remove from the human genome. And I don't know how like emotions are linked to the human genome or if this is a thing that could happen. Um, but I was trying to think about the, the functionality of the emotion of shame what is the good aspect of feeling shame? Because it seems like kind of a socially constructed thing to me that if we lived in a shameless society, that people who had things that they should, that feel like they should be ashamed of would maybe talk about them more and be able to work through them more. I'm thinking about, for example, like a pedophile or something who probably feels a lot of shame because they want to be sexual with children. But I feel like as a result of that shame and as as a result of feeling like they have to hide that, it becomes repressed and comes out later in very violent and gross ways. So can any of you think of a, a positive to the emotion of shame? Well, I think, I mean, when I think of shame, I think it's an emotion, like you said, that like comes from an idea of what is proper in society, right? So my first thought was like, shame is important because it prevents people from doing what they like would want to do. And those things are initially bad for society, like killing people or being a pedo, like having sex with children. Right. So like in a, maybe in a truly shameless society, right. There'd be a lot more people doing societally bad things because legal or like moral considerations wouldn't be enough for those people. Does that make sense? But is, is shame linked to morality or is shame linked to fear of people not fucking with you? I mean, I just think like shame is like what prevent, like shame is what you is when you feel bad for doing things that aren't societally sanctioned, right? So it makes sense that without shame, more people would do things that are not societally sanctioned. I feel like without shame, people when they started feeling these feelings would be like, "Yo, I'm feeling these feelings," and we would be able to intervene. That makes sense. Yeah, but they might not see those feelings as bad if they didn't have shame. Hmm. Right. Like a, ped- if a pedophile has no shame about like having sex with children, they'll just do it. I think that, are, are, so are you trying to equate shame with suffering basically? Or like a form of suffering, like all sh- suffering is not shame, but all shame is suffering type of thing? Well, at TBH, I didn't, um, I wasn't connecting it really well. I was, I was just thinking about the thing that you said about, you know, is there anything that you would erase from the human genome or sort of any experience that you would erase from being a human, and I was thinking about the functionality of things. Um, because I think what you were saying was that most negative things that we experience or feel are connected to something um, that have utility. And I was just really trying to like run through the list of things. And I th- the only thing that I could really think about was, does shame have a function that we could, like, that couldn't be easily replaced? So I think that Hanyu's saying that, like, you know, sh- the function of shame is to keep people from doing shit. But I think that eventually that shame isn't a good enough deterrent anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. 
There's also a, a lot of people feel shame for things that aren't bad, like a lot of sex stuff, right? Or being naked, which is not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I've I have some more things I want to say about suffering, but going back to the if you could eliminate like certain emotions from the human population or certain like aspects of the human mind. I think like the alien thing about violence that makes sense to me, mm-hmm. but I really do think the potential gains are really high, right? Like if you could like, p- like potentially eliminate all war, right? Or even like all like domestic violence or like, you know, everyone who like necessarily doesn't die, but like gets hurt because of someone just punching them. Right. That like is huge. That, that would be huge for humanity. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, even if there's like a, like a 1% chance the aliens invade us and take all of our stuff. That's worth it, I think, for all the potential human suffering avoided. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder because like violence like is is a has two components. It's like the impulse to be violent, right. and then it's the suffering of whoever's a victim of right. violence. Right. Right. There was like an Invisibilia podcast that I listened to about this woman who couldn't feel fear. Right. And she had a lot of bad shit happen to her. Um, like as people, you know, she'd been in like abusive relationships and stuff like that, and like it was very bizarre because it like didn't really affect her at all. Like she was not like traumatized by it or anything like that. So like, even if we couldn't get rid of the violence factor, would it be a positive thing for us to eliminate the ability to feel something negative as the result of being a victim of it? Right. I mean, as long as like in magic land, like maybe you could just eliminate aggression, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's a strong self-defense Right, motivation in your body but maybe there's also like a clear like aggression yeah right motivation that, that's like that seems hard to defend yeah yeah well why don't we go to what you were like your other thoughts on, oh, on yeah. suffering yeah. well if we really do feel like suffering has value i think the question is well should i like be seeking out suffering in my life for example like say you're raising a child or something and like you want this you know like you want your kid to be like a good person and like have a real like experience the lot, like the highs and lows of human life. Do you want your kid to be broken up by someone? Right. Is that something that like you're hoping happens? You want your kid, like, do you basically want your kid to suffer for them to like, you know, be well prepared to, to exactly. live life? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think about this a lot actually, because I think that I thought of the upper and lower extremes of what if I make you know, a ton of money and I can have whatever I want and be able to build whatever life I want. And I have children. Do I want to raise my child in an environment in which they are able to have whatever they want? Because it seems really hard to sort of construct an appreciation around that or uh, for what they have and an awareness that some people have less and be able to understand that. But also, I it seems weird and contrived to try and construct an environment of scarcity for a child that makes sense you're like i have in mind like a trust fund like classic stereotype trust fund baby that's what you're talking about right yeah and sort of yeah sort of the idea that they will always have something to fall back on but also even having like a really lavish lifestyle like you know say you had a mansion and your kid just becomes really accustomed to a certain kind of lifestyle i do feel like because that isn't the lifestyle of you know, the average person in the world or even in America or probably even in, you know, the community that they live in, it doesn't serve the child well as they 
are getting ready to enter the world. But as I'm saying that, I'm, ex you know, I'm thinking of all the people that I know that come from sort of nicer backgrounds that just, you know, just continue to live in that nicer background for the rest of their life. Right. They, they just like surround themselves with people that also can do the things that they do. And like when they grow up, they'll also have a nice house and I don't know. But I think that a child that has experienced some sort of scarcity or at the very or on the, on the other end has it has not been able to have whatever they want whenever they want it would have a little bit more of appreciation for what scarcity is in the world that makes sense yeah now i feel like we need to maybe we should have done this at the beginning but we need to really define suffering a little bit better because it, it kind of sounds like, it sounds like what you're talking about is like being spoiled right yeah. but i was thinking about like if my kid grows up to be 21 and he never breaks an arm like is that bad for him right he hasn't experienced that sort of physical pain or like he never you know is rejected mm -hmm. right like romantically i think you're right about about defining suffering i wasn't thinking of physical pain and this is just an off-the-cuff thought but i do think that physical pain does have a different effect on the psyche than emotional pain does do you think it's better that your kid gets rejected romantically than not like if you could choose which one would you choose i think i would choose for them to be rejected romantically yeah, honestly, because of perspective. Honestly, after thinking about it a little bit, I yeah, I, I think I feel the same way. And it's funny that I don't feel that way about myself. <laughs> like I'm very <laughs> Let's unpack that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's unpack that, honey. Well, like I mean, it's obviously easier when you're not the one feeling intense pain, you know. Yeah, I think I mean, you're super pain averse. Right? Definitely. Yeah, which is kind of why we're having this conversation. It is why we're exactly why we're having this conversation, and I think that the only reason I'm not pain averse is because I just like have experienced a lot of it. So I've learned how to like, in my opinion, properly lean into it, just experience out those emotions and take them for what they are. And I never took myself as a silver linings person, but I think that the more that I think about what you were saying, maybe I am because maybe that is just one giant silver lining, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. It's almost like a, me a coping mechanism. Yeah. But I do think that it has allowed me to walk through the world from a more informed point of view. Yeah. Well, here's another way of thinking about it. Say instead of like raising a kid or like instead of thinking about your kids, their entire, like until they grow up, let's consider your kid's entire lifespan. Right. And I think like if I could choose a life for my child, I would rather have one where they had never experienced any emotional heartbreak. The value of having an emotional heartbreak for a child is only so they can deal with heartbreak later down the road. I feel like I disagree with that, but I have to think about why I disagree with that. If I had to guess, it'd be something about the range of human experience, right? Yeah, and I think that, so my child never experiences heartbreak. I feel like on a social level, that makes my child less capable of moving in spaces with people that have been able to experience that and like are able to understand that. But is that worth like three weeks of crying in the shower every morning? <laughs> yes, I think that's character building. <laughs> See, like there's not much in life that's worth three weeks of crying in the shower every morning. Right. Or like stress vomiting or like, do you think that, how do you feel about grief? Like, would you turn off grief as a thing that, that people feel when someone dies, if you could? That's a really good question. Because that I think is probably like behind heartbreak. What people think of as like another big source of emotional right. pain is like when you lose a loved one. I think if I could push the, but the grief button to off, I would. And the only thing that, like makes me hesitate is this desire for respect for dead people 
which I am identifying as a second order thing. Like, I think it's important to have respect, but it's not worth like the like six months of feeling horrible when your grandfather passes away. Yeah, I think for me, uh, the answer for a lot of these questions would be to sort of like keep the suffering. But then at the same time, I kind of acknowledge that I'm able to have kind of a emotional privilege from that standpoint, because it definitely for me, because my emotions work in a very like kind of ad hoc. Like I, I feel like a lot of the time when I'm upset or sad, it's literally for no reason. It's just like a random thing. Right. And I know I'm fine actually with feeling those feelings in the moment because I know it always passes. Right. And I know that for other people, they don't process emotions in the same way that I do. So in that sense, I'm like, Oh yeah, totally cool with suffering. But also because I know that it, I think it's like uh, from a, I don't know, there's no way to be objective about it because you can't really know what another person is feeling, but all of those things are probably way less bad for me than it is for other people. Yeah. You know? So I can sort of afford to say that. Thinking for a little longer right now, like sometimes I think about my parents' death. Like it happens, I think, pretty frequently, actually. And, and just to be clear, your parents are not dead. Yeah, my parents are like, still alive. in the yeah, hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's a good clarification as well. And um, I am really sad. Like I, I, I'm like sad for myself in the future. Like I'm very kind of scared for what's going to happen to me and for future me. And you think that if you could you would push the button to make sure that in the future, when your parents do die, you won't feel sad about it. Yes. And I think my parents would also want me to do that too. Yeah, I've always sort of been enamored with this idea of at my funeral, I want it to be a celebration. And I guess that's kind of in the same vein. Yeah, exactly. Of when people, when I die and people are gathering to sort of honor me, I'd rather y'all be turning up and shit as opposed to like crying in a corner. I really want Isabel to talk more about the one sad experience she's had. But do you remember? Do you sincerely not remember any of it? Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> I remember it only through the kind of in the kind of way that your uh, very young childhood, like you you think you remember, right? But you really only remember stuff because your parents told you about it, right? Why did you and this person? break up uh he was just like i'm not like i am not romantically in love with you anymore <laughs> um and like it i think partially i don't know if it's worse or better if it if it if it seems like inexplicable or it does seem like there's like a rational thing right as opposed to like if you break up because you're like well i want to you know be a biologist in australia and like you know i'm never gonna see you again like if it's like a practical thing versus if it's just one of those things that you're like well i have no clue like how to explain this or like why this is happening if it's like if, if being able to rationalize it in some way makes it better or worse for you um but it was a very like at the time i was just like yeah, like, don't know why this is going on. So I'm just, like, uh, like upset about it, you know? Um, but that, I, yeah, like, I don't, I, it's hard to say because it's a counterfactual, right? Whether it would have been worse to, like, know or not know, like, if, have, to have, like, a sort of rational reason for it or whatever. I think that I've also experienced sort of someone just being like, yeah, I don't feel like I'm in love with you anymore. And my feelings on love aside... I do think that that experience is what introduced me to the idea that things 
do happen, especially within relationship contexts that are inexplicable and just super variable. And I think that as a result, I've sort of forced myself to become more comfortable with the, with that idea of things just going down and people just, people's feelings just changing and their paths uh, just abruptly changing and having to one, I don't, I feel like saying always be ready for that is something that feels paranoid, but I, I'll, I'll use that for lack of a better term, like always being ready for that and being able to more easily accept that if and when it does happen in the future. But do you feel like that's not a change that you have traced in yourself? I guess to some degree, but like it's not something that I'm proud of per se. I don't consider it to be like a good thing that I'm a more like jaded, pragmatic person as opposed to a like, oh, like I'm just going to like put everything into this relationship for the sake of having this movie, like, you know, cinematic understanding of this like fantasy, like roller coaster thing, right? That it's made out to be, right? I do think that that is like the fact that I can't have that at this point because of that experience is like not a positive for me, right? Just because I'm a more sort of practical person in that regard. I don't think it's a good thing. Like I don't think that I learned this thing that is thus making like my future relationships better per se. There's an interesting subtext here about the nature of like knowledge and learning. So like imagine that there's this alternate universe DeAndre on the couch right now who like never broke up with his high school girlfriend, right? And is like now married, right? And this alternate universe, DeAndre, is telling us about how important love is, how important commitment is, and how much he's learned, right, by being with, like, the same person for, like, 12 years or whatever, right? And, like, both DeAndres feel very confident about how much they've learned and how much they can say about the way love works, right? But, like, presumably, they can't both be right. I think that commitment-focused DeAndre is wrong because I think that the quote-unquote skill set that comes from being with someone for a long time is only applicable to being with someone for a long time. Right, but I guess what I'm going to say is like, it's not hard to imagine an alternate you which has like taken just completely different lessons from his life experience. And like, it doesn't need to be an alternate DeAndre. It needs to be, it could just be anyone who's like really had an easy time with like love and has just drawn drastically different like conclusions from their romantic history, right? And like, they feel very strongly about what they feel and the same way you feel very strongly about you feel. And like knowledge has to be objective, right? In some way. I don't think knowledge has to be objective. I think that some knowledge is more useful than other knowledge is. I feel like the, like the richness is like a super subjective, impossible to determine thing. Well, let's think about that. I'm, I'm a little curious by that. So we have this, like the way I'm thinking about it, we have these two like metrics for human existence right and like one is suffering and like the way i think about my life is trying to minimize suffering and like deandre has this other sort of like metric which is like richness so why what i think about is happiness right i usually want to optimize or increase my happiness in general but it seems like one way of viewing this conversation is deandre is like no there's actually the second thing which is also very important it's called richness and you can pursue this alternate strategy and it'll get you a lot of richness too yeah i think that if I could choose to have one life in which I was happy, for example, maybe with one person or doing one thing, like having, a, for example, a really great job that I really loved and I only did that one job for my whole life, I could choose between that life or a different life where I tried a bunch of different jobs, liked some, disliked some, spent a long time at some, spent a short time at others, and maybe use the, use the jobs as a way to build different skill sets uh, but didn't, but maybe had a net lesser amount of happiness. I think that I would choose that second option. 
I would rather have a variation of different experiences in which I am throughout them. I'm happy. I'm sad. I suffer a little, um, than one prolonged, really great experience. Yeah. I, it's hard to find a good way to sort of wrap it up. Right. So one thing that like a lot of other podcasts do is they come up with like a question that they always ask, like Ezra Klein always asks, like, what are the three books that you would recommend or whatever? Um, but we don't have a question like that. Do you have a recommendation for a question? <laughs> Maybe that could be our podcast ending question. <laughs> what question would you want everyone to answer? If we're talking about suffering and stuff, it would be something like either what's the most recent thing you did to improve your life or like what's the most important thing you've done in your life to improve your life mm. and like intentionally improve your life. That's a good one. Right. That's a really good one. Can you answer first? Well, Give me some time to talk about it because I had I don't know. But like so there are plenty of things that I did that ended up improving my life. Like and I'm But the intentionality is the the I mean there's an intentionality where it's like I wanted to improve my life, I did X and my life got better. I think I was going to college. Like I was pretty sure I was gonna go to college all throughout my life. Uh, so it wasn't like and it wasn't particularly difficult to get there given my family situation. But I got a huge amount of a huge amount out of college. And I had a pretty high, like I thought I was going to get a lot of college socially, you know, intellectually, professionally. It really was just straightforwardly awesome for me. I think that for me, and this is very on brand given what I've spoken about in this podcast. Um, I think for me, it was deciding to leave North Carolina and like apply for the fellowship that I got, uh, that well background uh coming out of nc state i applied for a fellowship that was mostly like anti-poverty anti-hunger focused so the fellowship sent me to new orleans and then to dc i think i was really scared and i think that i had well i know that i had some really good opportunities lined up that would have allowed me to stay in north carolina where i really enjoyed being but i think in pursuit of sort of a richer more varied experience um, and knowing about different things I opted to take the fellowship and be shipped off to places that I wasn't familiar with. And I actually think that the first half, I was placed in New Orleans for the first half of the fellowship. And I actually think that that first half, there was a lot of suffering that I experienced in New Orleans, mainly through loneliness, because I was in a new place where I didn't have a lot of friends. I'm an extreme extrovert, and it's hard for me to produce my own fun and be okay sitting by myself. And the six months that I spent in New Orleans was really a hyperbolic time chamber of that me figuring out how to be by myself and actually experience it. And I think that I grew a lot in that way. And then when I came to DC, I'm here and I got y'all and some other cool people. So I think that that wasn't the biggest like intentional move that I made for my life that resulted in some really dope shit. I would say that for me, it hasn't been a choice that I've made to improve my life, but rather like choices recently that I've made that have, have, have made my life worse that I now know to like ameliorate, which is that like I'm living in kind of a more isolated place and I know that I need to, I mean, ultimately I really, if we're going to be really extreme, I need to like join a commune, but like <laughs> just knowing to actively, like the thing that really sucks about adult life is that you have to, you can't just have all your friends within like a one mile radius of you, which is the worst. So just like having to really go out of your way to make time with people, I think is the number one thing that, makes my life better 
thanks for listening to this episode with our friend Hanyu. We really appreciate him. He lives in Boston, so he, you know, came down here just to visit us, and we really appreciate that. Um, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter. It's I'm the Villain Pod at I think on Twitter. Oh, I don't even remember what our handles are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Follow us on social media. <laughs> You'll figure it out. 